You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. You go all over the world and you visit family and family friends and they make you salata livia and satsivi and those dishes and you sit down to your supra, to your feast and it's like for that one night we are back in Tbilisi and we are back having those memories. That's, that's the power of food. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Hi, everybody. Hello and welcome. Hope you've been enjoying this delicious lunch. And we're now going to start the in conversation part of this gorgeous event. I want to say a huge thank you, or if I may, big esso, to everyone in the kitchen and front of house for feeding us so beautifully and showing us such wonderful hospitality. So my name is Jacqueline Krupe and I'm a bookseller, a book editor, an event host and just generally a foodie, bookish person. I've written two books about my grandparents, my nonni, Nonna Knows Best and Garden Like a Nonno. And that showcases, those two books showcase everything that they taught me about food, life and self-sufficiency. I'm really delighted to be in conversation with Norni Barrow and Alice Zavlaski. I'd like to acknowledge that this event is taking place on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I recognise their continuing connection to land, water, food, storytelling and culture. I pay respects to their elders past and present. So this lovely event is part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling a short series of big ideas, which is on now until Friday the 11th of November. Spring Fling is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership, and it's wonderful to see you all in the CBD today. This event is presented in partnership with Black and Bright and Griffith Review. The latest issue of the Griffith Review is all about food and taste, and a wonderful interview with Norni features in it. So I highly recommend you read it if you're into food, and I'm guessing if you're here, you're into food. So, Norni Barrow is from the Miriam people of the Murr Island in the Torres Strait and is the executive chef, CEO, and owner of Mabu Mabu and Big Esso. She's been a professional chef for more than 25 years. Her style of cooking, which we've all been enjoying, is all about generosity and flavour and she's been creating dishes using Australian native ingredients for much of her career. Alice Zaslavsky is an award-winning author and broadcaster. She was born in Georgia and is the cookery columnist for the Weekend Australian magazine. She's the host of Saturday Breakfast on ABC Radio Melbourne and the most lovely voice to wake up to on a Saturday morning, I think, and the culinary correspondent for ABC News Breakfast. Copies of all of our books as well as the Griffith Review will be on sale today and we're all happy to sign copies of our books at the end of our chat. Please join me in welcoming them to the panel. So we're going to be talking about food as a unifying force because it does bring people together and we'll each be talking about our own cultural heritage and how it has influenced our lives, our food, our restaurants, if we have a restaurant, our businesses, our cookbooks, our relationships and just our very souls. I hope it to be a far-ranging conversation about the roles of culture in our culinary landscape. So I'm going to start with myself. I grew up in an Italian migrant family here in Melbourne. I learned to cook from my nonnas. 
they never weighed a single ingredient. They never set a timer. We've, how, was, how did you know if something was done? You just knew. How much flour should you put in your pasta dough? Just, you know, do it by eye. It was a very intuitive way of cooking. And I wondered who, if anyone, taught you how to cook, Norni, when you were young? Um, yeah, so if you come from big families like we do and, you know, extended families mean you have many grandparents, you know, so your cousin's grandparents are your, your thing. So we learn from so many grandparents, so many uncles, so many aunties. And then my poor dad, he taught me how to cook pretty much everything too as well. So he actually probably taught me everything that I know and, and – traditionally um, cooking too as well, but all the aunties told me all the stories, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you give a bit of a yarn there. Um, told you all the stories why they would be like skinning yams and stuff. So I've had I've had a couple of uh, – many people show me the art of cooking, I think. Amazing. And you, Alice? Uh, it's definitely uh, an element of my learning that began when I was a kid and there's definitely that very romantic notion of my babushka and ziadushka, you know, being out in the garden in Georgia. But if I'm honest, the people that taught me how to cook were the ones that I watched on TV after school. Right. So, you know, Rick Stein's Odysseys, Nigella, uh, all of the, the one-name chefs, Great British Menu. You know, I was a latchkey kid, so after school I would just be watching these shows and then I would be attempting some of the stuff that I saw or it might even have just been a packet cake and if someone had told me at that point that's not cooking that would have intimidated me out of continuing the process. That's really interesting because in your latest book The Joy of Cooking you do write that this intergenerational passing on of knowledge that Norni and I are sort of talking about um, and learning and that's how we've learned how to cook is being lost as we get busier and society changes. So I wonder how apart from the cooking shows how do you think food knowledge is being passed on these days? I think in this room probably it's being passed down the way it's always been passed down. So if you've got grandchildren, you're probably including them in the process of growing, of of cooking and of eating together. Uh, for some people, it's social media. TikTok has blown up, particularly for the new generation. You know, Gen Zs are watching how to cook on TikTok, on YouTube, and that's how they're learning. And that's okay too. Sure. So they kind of have to find the knowledge where they can and kind of – you know, <laughs> jump on the train, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Norni, how do you, in, I watched a great program recently I was telling you, it's called Straight to the Plate and it's all in the Torres Strait Islands and the, everyone's cooking and what, I re what really struck me is how the kids are just there. For everything that's being made, they're there. They're not being instructed but they're watching. Yeah, so um, our culture is not like a written one. It, it is starting to be written now, so it's all taught and you la you learn language through actually listening and remembering and, and understanding it through that, that way. So cooking, like you see these kids and I've just been up to the Torres Strait recently and you sit with them and you talk about island food with them and they're like... <laughs> <laughs> they're like making all these like oh, like delicious sounds you know when they start talking about um island food so you know that the culture is still alive when you can hear a kid say oh that damper's too good you know that's scone you know we need more scones and like you know so i i i feel very lucky that i think my culture still really does live through food yeah. so yeah great 
So both Georgian and Torres Strait Islander cuisine is known for incorporating an amalgam of flavours and ingredients from surrounding countries, from different trade routes that move through them. Can you tell us a little bit about the defining elements of Torres Strait Island and Georgian cuisine? Whoever wants to go first. Um, I guess for us, uh, you know, most people don't know that the Torres Strait was multicultural before the rest of Australia was and we had so many people fly through, you know, and rename our islands because they thought, yeah, because they thought they could um, and then rename them and then rename them again and and then when the, um, you know, the war happened and then the pearling industry happened and the beach de mer um, happened and then you've got like a lot of Japanese settlers settled into the Torres Strait and then, you know, you get names like mine which is Barrow which is like an island name and then my cousin is named Shibashaki, you know. Um, so you know that we've, we're now cross-cultural and um, so we've been able to kind of bring all those cultures together and and I think people forget on we come from a tropical part of the world and Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and all of that are an influence on us so we kids uh, when we grow up we have our palates are way ahead of what the palates are down here in 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 Melbourne because we eat so much more and you have no choice either you get what you're given like you know if it comes out of the ground you're eating it you know so I guess you know our our conversation through multiculturalism is so important to me because I I do that with my business but it's because I am multicultural Absolutely. And Alice, can you tell us a bit about Georgian cuisine? Very, very much the same. You know, Georgia is a very small place, but it is, um, it, it was known as the fruit bowl of, of the Soviet Union. It's very fertile soils. And so it's experienced a lot of conquest over the years, whether it was the Huns uh, or the Ottomans and all, and it was on the spice trail. So if I had to describe the kind of the features of Georgian cuisine, imagine North Indian spicing, Southeast Asian fresh herbs, the cheeses of Europe uh, and every kind of bread that you can imagine. Yum. <laughs> Particularly <laughs> cheese bread. So uh, you can imagine that that kind of has influenced the food. If I had to describe it in flavours, it would be coriander, garlic and walnuts. Wow. If in doubt, just add those together <laughs> and you've got Georgian, and Georgian and just finish with pomegranates. The end. Nice, nice. Well, tell us what a dish is then that tastes like home. If you had to name one dish that just it tastes like home, what is that dish? Oh, for me, it's got to be the ocean, you know. Uh, I think I talked about this earlier when before you guys got here that I'm like, you know, seafood is the breakfast of champions. So um, <laughs> any day of the week, you know, when you're a kid like me growing up on a reef and walking out on a reef every single morning and you come home with your fresh octopus, you know, and you're pickling it the night before and that's how I started my pickling company probably um, is because I was a child already pickling things and, and clams and stuff like that. It, it's always seafood every day of the week. Wow. Okay. Sounds great. Alice? Uh, my parents travelled a lot when I was a kid. They're both academics and I would travel with them. Uh, but if one of them was going on their own, when they came back, they knew that it would be the same food that was on the table. Right. It would be satsivir, which is like a Georgian chicken dish, poached chicken shredded with a walnut, garlic, coriander sauce. <laughs> You sort of answered it already. I did. I really answered it. Uh, and then it might be something uh, that's more of a Soviet influence like Salata Livier, which is like a potato salad with mayonnaise and, um, you know, tinned peas and and uh, maybe some, some carrot, maybe some some crab. Sometimes you got crab. That was fancy crab, but probably chicken, maybe spam or, you know, <laughs> yeah. chopped up ham. Yeah. 
the taste of home. So I'd love to talk about writing about food and talking about food in English when English, perhaps for all of us, is our second language or at least it exists among other languages that we speak or at least understand, I often find myself talking about food, especially Italian food, in language that I translate literally from Italian. And it sounds strange in English. It's not right. Um, and so especially if I'm writing, I then have to sort of edit myself to say things how we would say them in English. You're both lovely writers and you have you each have such a strong and distinct voice. But I wondered if, when you're ever writing or speaking about food, does English just sometimes not feel quite right? Yeah, I think just food... I, I have more of a feeling about food. So even just at, trying to describe it, it's more like, like I said, those kids that it's like, <laughs> look at that. Like, you know, I look at food and I'm like, mm, you look good. Like, you know. Um, so for me, I guess, yeah, I mean, trying to translate, you know, what, what I feel from growing up and, and how we like love and describe food. It's always, it's always a feeling for me, you know, of how much I really enjoy food. But yeah, translating into, you know, cultural, because we were never a written language and then understanding how we speak as well. Cause we do, when we speak the language, it's basically back to front. So then trying to write it from, from front to back is, you were trying to get a message across that could be very different to what it comes out on the paper. And all I want to write is, ooh, <laughs> you know, like, you know, on there. So I guess we need to find a way a for you to do that. I love that. Alice, how about you? English uh, is my third language. So I learnt Georgian first, then Russian, then English. And I think having all of those different phonemes in my head and all of those kind of prefixes and suffixes and understanding sentence structure in multiple languages means that I like playing with words and when I look at an English word, I break it down to all of those things to understand the etymology and why they've chosen that word. And I guess what that means as well is there is a level of onomatopoeia to English uh, where that ooh, ah, you know, <laughs> you can feel it, feel some words yeah. and you can taste some words. So when I'm writing an introduction to a recipe, I'm already thinking how can I make somebody taste this dish as they're reading these sentences. Um, and it's fun. It's yeah. playful. Yeah, absolutely. So, Norni, I was so delighted to discover that you and I do something quite similar in our books when talking about serving sizes. So, you say it serves four, but if you're talking about island families, probably two. <laughs> and I say serves four or two hungry Italians. So, do you both think that even serving sizes are cultural? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, like, I'm working on my goal weight, so, um, you know, uh, it's, I'm the smallest in my family, you know, <laughs> so it's a, it's different. We, I always cook at home and it's like just two of us and, and then I'm like, I have to invite like 10 other people over, <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of leftovers. It, it's, it is a cultural thing. We, we cook for people, you know, it, it's not just the family, it, it's more, for everyone, because uh, food is is the gel, I guess, for conversation. So you're always cooking for more. Yeah, and that's your generosity of 
cooking as well. Alice, how about you? The biggest challenge um, that I recall as far as serving sizes was, you know, a decade ago I was on MasterChef Australia and when you are a feeder, you cook for people, right? So you're cooking for six, you know, you're cooking for eight and the judges had to explicitly tell us, guys, you're cooking one dish for us to judge. So you can kind of pull back on the portion sizes here. Um, And so it's kind of fit for purpose, but I like to be pretty general as well because you don't know, you don't know what people's appetites are. It's kind of four to six or four to eight is a really nice kind of rule. And people will say to me, I live at home by myself or it's just the two of us. Uh, There's this thing called maths uh, where you can divide things actually, which could be really useful for you instead of kind of trying to be too clever with it. I think the problem lies though is that you're cooking for everyone and you're like, yes, that's going to taste good. And then when you cook for two, you're like, "Mm, do I have to pull back? Yeah. You know, and you don't want to pull back because you're like – if I pull back, will it taste the same? Yeah. If it's not a larger portion? Yeah. Leave it for future um, so, yeah, you. Exactly. Leave it for Ron. Leftovers. That's where I get my goal away from. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, or this could be COVID. I'm kidding. No, it's, I, I literally work on it. It's fine. Yeah. So, Norna, you grew up on Mer Island and came to Melbourne in the late 90s, if I have that right. And, Alice, you moved from Georgia when you were seven years old? Six. Six years old. So, I want to talk about the culture shock of that move. Uh, I guess for me, I was older, um, so um, it is. It's really think when people don't realize that you know these islands are very small. You get like five hundred people that live on an island, and you're in the middle of a like ocean is all around you. And at when you're a kid, you're like, "Am I? How do I get out? Do I just swim? <laughs> you know, uh, if you don't have a dinghy, like where are you going? Um, so you're like, it, "I am I ever gonna?" like leave and you try sometimes you know you know kids like they they try and swim as far as you get and they're like you're tired you go back in you know so coming down here is it was a massive culture shock and and it wasn't just because of where I come from but when I when you grow up like me and you grow up so multicultural and I came here in the 90s that was different to not be as comfortable as I were where I lived, where no one really judged, no one really cared about where I was from or who I was. And and to come down here and then get hit with that, I think that was the biggest thing that I faced, I think, of coming all this way. But, you know, I grew up with a lot of cousin brothers. I got over it. Uh, and my dad taught me to be really strong of who I am. So coming down here was – it the – I love, I love, I'm, I, t- I say to people, I'm a Melbourneian now. I've been here a long time. You know, I love it. This is my home and I've made it my home. Um, but yeah, when I first came down, I think it, it was, it was a very big culture shock more because I, I came from such a multicultural place to where I thought was going to be just as multicultural and so accepting. But maybe it wasn't so much, but didn't make me leave though. So I just, made them work around me. <laughs> well, you made it more multicultural yourself. Alice, how about you? Uh, I didn't speak the language. So when I came to Australia, especially as a very gregarious person that loves to connect with people, I found it really challenging uh, to be in a school and to not be able to actually connect with my classmates. So what I would do is I would get my parents to buy extra snacks uh, <laughs> and they would be in my lunch box or in my lunch bag and I would use those as my hook. To make friends. Yeah. And I have never stopped doing that, yeah, actually. Wow. That's <laughs> sort of defined the rest of your life. Um, to, 
A on a serious note, the Torres Strait has seen the impact of climate change sooner than any of us on the mainland. And I just wondered if you could tell us how that's impacted and informed your emphasis on sustainability in food. Well, for me, uh, I guess, you know, we try and do as much as we can at big, uh, as a part of Mabu Mabu from the buying directly from farmers that we have and also using sustainable seafood, you know, that can rejuvenate come forward, all that. And learning from being a Torres Strait Islander too as well of they take what they need only mm. and they only take at the same time. Yes, they're making a living, but they also know what to take and what not to take. And learning about that has been like an amazing influence for me on when I create menus here too as well and, and teaching people that you can eat less because it's more delicious mm. or we can be – really homing in that Australia has amazing produce that, you know, can sustain us too as well without having outsource sort of, you know, what we have here. And when as a part of us, we made, I made a decision that I only wanted to do Australian made. And so, and that has been really important to make sure that the farmers get 100% of everything that they do or that they produce. And I, I work with a lot of farmers directly, which a lot of wholesalers hate me for. Uh, they keep trying. I keep saying no. Um, and it's, a, it's our, our choice, though, how we make sure that sustainability, I think we have to make the decision. We don't, it's not the farmer's fault. It's none of their faults. They, we, as the people that are the consumers, need to make a conscious effort, you know, because it's, it's up to us of what we want to put on a plate as a business as well. It's, it's your choice. Yeah. So you have to really think about it. But coming from the Torres Strait, the way that they actually work with climate change up there, you know, a couple of the islands like Saibai and Buigu will probably go under in the next, you know, 50 years. And that's like a whole other community where a different language, a different um, people, that their whole islands will go. And where are they going to go? To other islands and then we'll be all grouped into one group of people, which is like Thursday Island anyway. Um, but the thing is, is that they do everything up there to make sure that they can help grow what they do. Mm. They are working sustainably up there. They understand what to take and what to. I think we should make a conscious effort to, to do the same because it affects everybody around the world, climate change, and they're going under and their source of food, when, when those floods happen up there, that's their whole, that's their um, whole like soil and everything getting washed away that they have to grow things in. So I think it's it's up to us to Absolutely. make the choice. Absolutely. And on, on that note, I was very much raised with the idea that if you eat an animal, you eat the entire animal. We are talking about this a little bit earlier. Offal, feet, hoof, blood, the whole animal. And in my family, we get multiple meals out of any protein source. And I see, obviously, we've, we've dined on kangaroo tail tonight uh, today, sorry. And this just – it fits in with sustainability, right? If you're going to eat an animal, eat the whole animal – yeah. So, I just how do you both feel about this nose to tail eating? I guess I, I'm all about the non-pretty things. <laughs> I decided that, um, you know, we're always obsessed with going to like the supermarket or to the butcher and going, oh, that like looks really pretty, you know, but it probably doesn't taste nice. You just have told yourself that it's going to taste good because it looks good. Um, so, I've always made a choice to like um, use the cuts that no one wants to make something delicious out of it because 
we should use everything. And I grew up where we use every single part of the animal that we kill or or everything that comes out of it has a multiple uses. So I want to make sure I keep doing that as a part of my business too as well. Yeah. But also offal is delicious. It's delicious. Um, you know, yeah. as far as what I grew up eating, like the um, the gizzards and uh, the, the chicken liver pate and even tongue, you know, ox tongue was something that was a real delicacy in our household. And I know, I see your face. <laughs> and unfortunately in this country, I think there's a lot to be said for the generation that just overboiled and underseasoned yes. everything. Yes, yes. Like your mother. Oh, clapping. (laughs) And so we kind of have to unlearn some of those kind of expectations of the aroma and the flavour and the texture of these foods because, as you say, you know, if we are going to eat sustainably, we need to think of every piece of that animal as being just as special, if not more so than the rest. But you'd be surprised, right? Like if you pressed, smoked, pressed tongue is delicious. (laughs) And um, get... Uh, gamekeepers, you can order straight to your door some of these pieces um, that have been pre-made for you. The artisans have done all the heavy lifting. They won't taste like your mother's overboiled, under-seasoned tongue. They will change your They'll change your life. They'll change the game for you. I think you've got to understand that, like, you know, food was designed by many multiple cultures and we should eat it the way that they eat it because that teaches us how we're supposed to eat food. We butcher food sometimes, you know, but the thing is, is there's a certain way things should be cooked and tried for the first time. If you try it like that, you'll love it every single time. Oh, I love this. We're changing hearts and minds. So you're both very good at using flavours or techniques from other food cultures and incorporating them into your recipes with your focus on your ingredients. So I'm thinking of recipes like, Alice, your carrot makani, which is a staple in my place, and Norni, your kangaroo tartare. Can you tell us about your process of incorporating this a, a technique or a flavour profile from another culture but making it your own and putting your stamp on it? It's about understanding that, um, as you mentioned, you know, each culture develops flavours and textures and dishes to be at their most delicious. So how can you take some of that inspiration and then your own context and and culture and create something that is uh, in keeping with your palate and your appreciation of both cultures together. It's a, it's about, you know, a lot of conversation is happening around the world of, of food writing at the moment about appropriation versus appreciation. And what I like to say, um, and I'm so glad that you brought this up, is that it should be, it shouldn't just be about where someone has come from. It should be about where someone is going and you should be going with them on that journey. So it's exciting to me to say to you that if you like by a chicken, then you could use carrot and you could make a vegan version of butter chicken that is going to blow your mind. And we'll It's going to blow your mind, honestly. It's going to blow your mind. As will can- kangaroo tartare. I mean, yes. classic French. Chicken. Well, yeah. I mean, like you, you've got to honour the meat itself, you know, and, and to get it over the line and, and, and to showcase what you want people to try. Sometimes you have to use these different methods to get it over the line so that people will visibly see it and understand, oh, yeah, I didn't know I could eat it that way. Well, yeah, I'm telling you, you can. 
So it's just to get you over the line sometimes to just try something and get out of your comfort zone, you know, of trying something good. And and these things are amazing. I mean, I just came back from the Torres Strait and my team, um, unfortunately, I wasn't going to mention this actually, but my team, we we ju- we went to the outer islands and we were we got off at, at Moa Island um, and we were at Kubin Village. And uh, one of my my executive chef, uh, which I was disappointed that she didn't try it, but um, she uh, she just bought this uh, like little cute painting of a dugong, you know. And I was like, oh yeah, that's nice, yay! We're at the art center, yeah. She really loved it and stuff. And then ten minutes later, we're driving down the beach, and there's the, you know a couple of the guys just cutting up two dugongs, you know, on the beach, and. Uh, <laughs> So I was like, yay, this is awesome, you know, and we, we, we pulled over and um, it's very confronting, you know, um, but it is a part of our diets, you know, and we, we don't overfish them, we eat them for special occasions and, and the guys were like, oh yeah, here. So they just like sliced a couple of fresh bit off and went, here, taste it, you know, and I, I, it's like beautiful, it's like sweet and I'm like, oh, imagine a tate with this, you know. Um, is it going to be on the menu? <laughs> no, no, no one's picketing the restaurant, okay. Um, <laughs> It's only eating for special occasions and we have sure. the right to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I won't do it down here. Don't worry. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, but my executive chef, she just bought it and then she went, no, I can't, I can't try it. And I was like, you literally, you should try this. And she's like, no. And I, I was, at that one moment, she, I was crushed. Right. Because you normally she will eat anything, and uh, my the rest of the team uh, tried it, but yeah, uh, and now she's regretting that she yeah. didn't. It's all you art's know? fault. Yeah. That's stupid painting. So uh, I guess yeah, you just never know what no. you're going to come across. No, try it all. Um, I just want to go back to the '90s, Nonny, because um, you've written about how hard it was as a woman of color to work in the Melbourne hospitality scene at that time. And you say this was the 90s and the kitchens were ruled by men. Yeah, you know how back in the 90s they were like, stay in the kitchen and then they won't let you in when you want a job. Um, I was like, oh, bit touche here, isn't it? You won't let me in, but you want me there. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, look, it wasn't easy and I... I knocked on a lot of doors. I, I, I had a full afro back then. Like, can you imagine a full head? Of, like, I was, like, extra. Like, me and Michael could have been sisters, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I had a full afro back then. And, you know, I, I knocked on many doors to get, in, to get into the hospitality industry. And because of the way I looked and, and who I was and because I was a woman, it, it, was, it was so tough. And... I didn't mention this in my book. I think Michael and I talked about it and then I was like, we shouldn't put that in there. Um, and I, uh, I did, uh, I, I just really wanted to work in the hospitality industry. And I sort of, I worked for this lovely family for many years afterwards when, when he gave me the job. And I, I worked out that it wasn't why I did this, but I was like, how am I going to get my foot in there? Like, you know, I just, I just really want a job. So I was like, my hair and my, like, you know, my looks and, uh, are not getting me in the door. So I thought, i got a good rack, you know, and um, why not wear a little bit of a low-top shirt and uh, go and ask for a job. Um, and, and I did. I got my first job. Wow. Uh, so, it's uh, a terrible lesson. 
So it was a, it was a very terrible lesson that I'm telling you. Yeah. But then I worked out that actually he gave me the job because it was a really small family pub. Right. And I worked for them for a really long time. They were really beautiful people. And that's how I got my foot in the door. And it was very, very hard. I can tell you now I've been spat at, burnt, wow. you know, um, called everything under the sun uh, by every male chef that I've ever worked in. And But I had grew up with a lot of boys and I was like, you know what, you're just in my way. So I would work around them and steal their jobs. Yeah. So And that's how I stayed in the industry because I – I really wanted to be who I was and I wasn't going to let anybody get in my way to do so. And so, yeah, it's a weird story, but That's also, um, uh, we island people, we like a bit of human there, uh, just to get you over the line sometimes. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't just survive in the industry, obviously, you've, you've taken it over. So, but it's, it, I mean, it's obviously heartbreaking that that was what you had to go through to to get to this point. Yeah, well, because somebody actually said that. I went to an agency and some a, a the agency woman looked over to me and she went, oh, you're going to have to do something with your hair. And I'm like, I, I, have, I don't understand the question. Computer does not, uh, you know, like, what, what? What am I going to do? This is, like, shall I shave it off? Uh, will I get a job then if I was bald? I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, it was not. Easy. Okay, so changing tack again and getting super sad. Alice, you recently posted a link to an article in the New York Times about cultural bereavement, which is a term that was coined at Monash University. And it's a term that's used to try to explain the emotions and the mental health of migrants. And it's about a very specific kind of mourning of cultural identity, self-identity, family history. And it's a, it's a melancholy, really. Um, the article is wonderful and I highly recommend you all read it. But um, Min Jin Lee, the, a wonderful novelist, says, you know, it's not a nation or a place and it's not just that they miss the taste of the food. It's that all those things are essentially associated with a loss of an identity. And so I'd love for us to talk a little bit about the way food forms and informs our identities and who we are and how we go through the world. In Russian, there's a word which can't really be translated and it is called taska, which is that melancholy. You're right. It's like that grief and that m mourning and also longing, I suppose. Uh, and so for my, uh, for my parents who came here in their mid-30s, mid to late 30s, that was something that they experienced very deeply, very strongly because when they left Georgia, they did so because it was under a similar uh, circumstances to what's happening in Ukraine. You know, in 89, there were violent protests in Georgia. Um, compound that, you know, right in the, in the same street that my kindergarten was. You know, and I didn't even realise that until a few years ago I was reading a book about Georgian uh, culture called The Eighth Life, Eight Generations of Georgian Women. And in that chapter in 89, uh, they speak about this violent protest where 30 people died. And I said to mum, were we there? And she said, oh, yeah, but it happened at night. So, you know, so really it's almost like they had to compartmentalise that that element and that um, part of their lives in order to remain resilient and maintain the grit that it took to completely upend a young family and start again, which is a story that I'm sure many of you would resonate with, if not in your generation, in generations past, to get here to this country. Um, and there's a very good reason why it's food that brings you back to, at the very least, some element of comfort and familiarity because it's so multi-sensory. 
the hippocampus, you know, that's in charge of memory is very, very close to your uh, to the part of your brain that processes aroma and flavour. So as you're smelling something, it's triggering little synapses and little spark-off points in your brain saying, remember that? Remember this? And I was just in London in a spice shop at Borough Market and the thing that I came home with in sort of four tubs worth was Khmer Sunneli, which is a Georgian spice mix, kind of like our garam masala, because I know that when I give that to my mother, that's like giving her a postcard of home and it's better than any other souvenir that I could ever bring her. And when I came back to Georgia in 2014, for the first time since 91, um, I, I could have kissed the ground. And I left when I was six. You don't realise what you miss until you're there and you just – it's like a piece of your heart was missing and you didn't even realise. Um, and truly, you know, there's nothing like it. But then you go all over the world and you visit family and family friends and they make you salata livia and satsivi and those dishes and you sit down to your supra, to your feast and it's like for that one night we are back in Tbilisi and we are back having those memories. That's – that's the power of food. Beautifully put. Yeah. I don't think I can top that. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, look, for me, I, I, like I do understand, you know, I, and I've been lucky just recently going back home was um, and bringing my team with me so that they could really understand who I was and, and um, you, you, you see these kids, they island dancing and they all sing and, and they eat together and you see the joy of when they're eating island food and then just having my team also experience island food and watching them taste it for how we, we make it here and, and the authentic of, of being there. And, and for me, I, I get to, every time I go home now, it, it just reminds me of my dad's been passed away for a long time. So he never got to experience any of this, um, see me where I am now today and, and never really knew all this because he was gone before I even decided, oh, yeah, sure, I'll open a restaurant. <laughs> um, but, you know, going back home for me and, and food is just, it's always, like you said, memory. And for me, I've lived here a very long time. And I've always still made my traditional food down here so that I could feel like I was still at home. You know, I make my wife eat it all the time. <laughs> she says, you can eat it for three days, but I can't. Um, <laughs> but because uh, I want three days of feeling like I'm from home, you know. <laughs> and so every time I made that food of being away, and I wrote it in my book as well for the first time I hunted and gathered around here when I first got here and I found periwinkles down at, you know, uh, down at Williamstown, I was like, yes, it is an island, you know? <laughs> I, I can still get home, home stuff here. And I was like, yeah, I belong here now. Because yeah. just knowing that and, and eating, the, eating the foods that I get to make now, and I, I explained to you guys earlier that, you know, um, the food that you're having today and, and what I do on the menu is my childhood growing up. And so I get to experience that all the time now. Yeah, and share it with us, which is so beautiful. Um, so talking about – so coming to Australia, we're talking about Australian cuisine and I was lucky enough to interview Stephanie Alexander earlier this year and as I prepared for that event and read over all – I tried to read every interview she'd ever done, the question she was asked every single time over her whole career, which is a long career, is what is modern Australian cuisine? And she says she still cannot answer that question – and I wondered, can you guys? 
Um, I don't think there is one. <laughs> Modern Australian. I think we we have adapted so many different types of cultural um, food out there, and I don't think you can ever class it as modern Australian. I think chefs themselves, if you're thinking of chefs out there, they're all versed in so many different cuisines because they tra- chefs barely stay in a job two years, you know, and because they're moving on because they want to learn more and they w- want to develop their skills more and they want to know more about life. And most kitchens are so multicultural that you just don't even realise. So I don't think modern Australia, I don't believe it exists. I just think that we're just a part of an ever-changing world of food lovers and I think we don't have a cuisine that is Australian, uh, modern Australian. I think if you're going to talk about the cuisine of Australia, it should be the Indigenous food of Australia. And those cuisines that we actually have already existed, because I talk about Torres Strait Islander cuisine and it it has existed because I know it and I, I breathe it. And I think if you want modern Australian, it should be the Indigenous foods of this, of this country. Yeah, I agree. And that actually takes me to the next section, which is all about native foods. So when I started my – I'm a gardener. When I started my garden, it was during the millennial drought and I thought I will plant a native garden in my front garden and that will help me save on water and then I'll plant my productive garden in my back garden and that will give me all the food sources that I need. I was very naive. So (laughs) what I really quickly learned was that my native garden was just as productive as my productive garden and it needed a lot less water. So I grew things like midgen berries, warrigal greens, lemon myrtles, salt bush, lemon scented tea tree, myrnong and lots of other things. And I wondered, how do you both think we can go about educating people about these, like me, about these incredible native foods that we can so easily grow on our doorsteps? Sure. Uh, So when I was first creating Phenomenon, which is uh, the digital toolkit that's entirely free, being used by teachers around the country, it's on ABC Education, we knew we needed to have uh, as much of a focus on native vegetables. It's all focused on encouraging kids to um, appreciate fruit and veg. So it needed to have as much of an emphasis on that as the introduced species. And yet when it came time to find the experts and to find the produce, you know, I had to get uh, Hort Innovation who funded the program. They needed to get me some yolk because it wasn't commercially viable, you know, which is kind of like a cross between a radish and a carrot. Very sweet, crunchy, juicy, delicious. The kids that were part of the series loved eating it, but it's still yet to be seen on supermarket shelves. And there's a very good reason for that. And that reason is because these growers need to – they're business people, right? So they need to weigh up what is going to be commercially viable for them to grow. So in order for us to encourage more supply of these foods, we need to encourage the demand – for those foods. It's restaurants like, you know, Big Esso. It's like it's like what Norni's doing. It's like what increasingly at a fine dining level chefs are doing. You know, you mentioned what is modern Australian cuisine. The Melbourne Food and Wine Gala for the 30 under 30, all 30 of those cards of all of those chefs who were asked, what is your kind of focus on food? Where do you think it's going? They all spoke about uh, First Nations foods and practices and native species being something that they would like to see more of in the shops. So um, I was... Uh, facilitated a panel that was all about like food trends at the growers conference and all of the growers were saying we will happily grow warrigal greens but why should we do that if we're already struggling to sell spinach 
So I guess it's, it is definitely an education piece and it's a normalisation piece and we just need to continue to do what we can in our spheres of influence. If you see Warrigal Greens at your greengrocer, buy it, blanch it, have it with your poached eggs. You know, there are absolutely um, so many delicious things that you can do with it. If, if I can just add to that, if you're a gardener, Warrigal greens are so easy to grow. Spinach is difficult. It's fussy. It's not as good for you. Every time someone messages me and says, how can I grow my spinach? I say, don't. Grow warrigal greens. I'm, I'm with you on that. It is so easy to maintain. And um, I think we, we have to think about ourselves as well because as, we're the consumer and we're the ones asking for the produce. And I tell everybody every single time because everybody's like, how do I get like how do I get native ingredients? And I said, it's your choice. You need to ask for it. If you do not ask for it, it will not be on the shelf. And the more we ask for it, the more it will become available because we are not supporting. It's not the farmer's fault again, because they only make what they know they can sell. But if we want it like more regularly and in supermarkets, it's up to us to make sure that they get that business and that they can grow because native ingredients is from here and it's better for our environment. And we should be growing more of it because then it, and plus it's so unique, you know, it's so delicious. Every time I talk about native ingredients, I'm like, I always think, why? Why have we just not like get it over the line? Like it is so delicious, and we're just we're not tapping into the natural resources of Australia, and and I, that's why I love Australia so much too as well. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that we can stand on our own two feet, and we've got some amazing things here. And it's up to us. It's our choice. We're the ones actually asking the demand to have tomatoes every. Every year, all year round. And come on, who has had a good tomato? Not yet. No one. Stop eating them. <laughs> you know? Just give them a break a bit. Have them when they're in season. You know? It's us. It's our, it's our decision to eat seasonally. You know, when you want a mango, I always get excited at Christmas time for a mango and a cherry. I'm like, yes, it's Christmas. You know, you start jingle belling, you know, it's like your new theme song um, as you're walking down the street. Enjoy it when it's there. If it's not there and it's not available on another time of the month, don't buy it. It's not supposed to be there around at that time. Enjoy it when it's in the seasons. And then we will able to share the love of food all year round. Really nicely put. Yeah, well done. I also think native ingredients is just something, native foods is something we can all be really proud of. Like it's something we should be really proud of that we are, this country can grow some really amazing foods without the resources that the foods that we're growing require. Um, Plant warrigal greens. If you need a cutting, come to my house. I have. I will. I will set you up. We will get warrigal greens all over the place. Nornie, I was going to ask you to tell us what native ingredients mean to you, but I think you've well and truly done that. Um, but do you have something you do recommend to people if they do want to start growing native? Yeah, native foods? grow what's in for your local area. Don't grow outside of it. If it doesn't belong here, it's not for the soil here because you're going to wait for – everybody's like, my finger lime tree gives me nothing. And I'm like, well, it's not supposed to, you know. Um, oh, but like I can get like my uh, gardener has like a tree that gives yield. I'm like, that's like one in a million shot that it's going to work. So grow what's in for your local area. Just it, You'll get a better yield out of it. It's supposed to be here. Enjoy the other stuff from where it's come from. Yeah. 
We will have time for audience questions in a moment. So if you have a question, now is the time to start formulating it. The microphone will come to you. I'll call on you in just a second. I had a very long question about this, but I'm going to whittle it down. I found it very interesting that you both have businesses that make sell condiments and ingredients and sauces and chutneys and all these delicious things. It's something common to you both. I also am a massive preserver. I have a huge larder full of jams, chutneys, pickles, you name it, because I'm a gardener, so I have glutts of things and then I need to preserve them. And my grandparents taught me this, that in times of plenty, you need to prepare for the lean times. Uh, We didn't have much money, so that was sort of the way we got through was the pantry. And so my question was very complicated and it was about class and food and all of those sorts of things, but do you see preserves and what you're doing with what you're get, getting these ingredients to people as part of sort of your cultural identity? Yeah, I think it, my cultural identity is across the things because I'm a Torres Strait Islander, but I work in the native food industry, which is also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. So I want to be a representation of, of trying to amalgamate those, what Australia has to offer. I can only talk from, you know, my experience of being an island girl, um, but I do use a lot of natives from mainland Australia because I'm still learning too. You know, but I want to introduce it because I think Australia is awesome. So for me, I think having those – I started off as a condiment business and it's funny because I, I barely eat condiments. <laughs> um, and I think I've always made food for people and I guess that, that's what I want to do. Like with this whole thing that I try and do is about people and having the employees that I have are all, all the people that I feed every day. So I think it's about people for me, yeah. And and for me, um, I know growing up, we always – I think the dream in, in our household would be like a, a larder, right, <laughs> or some sort of cellar, definitely a cellar with pickles and preserves and uh, your own – my grandfather would make his own wine. Um, and so it, whenever you went to somebody's house, you'd bring a jar. Yeah. And so I think for me that kind of condiment vibe is that everybody can feel like they're in my home as soon as they've got a jar of tumami. But what it also means, because I've just spent the last decade, you know, curating the experience of artisanal produce for people. So I'll say, hey, you should go and check out Norny's strawberry gum or whatever. And then I thought, you know what, why don't I just cut out the middleman and control the quality of what I'm recommending and support these small producers? So I've got an Australian organic tomato grower. I've got a Victorian black garlic. And I've got a platform where people want to pick up what I'm putting down. So why not just create the condiments for myself? And I think I'm really excited about veg in general, but I'm especially excited to see innovation in vegetables. Black garlic, if you haven't tasted it, to me is just as exciting as black truffle. It adds so much umami and depth and interest to a dish. Same price point. Oof. I mean... Same price point. No, not the same price point. This is the thing, right? Black garlic is kind of like $150 a kilogram. Black truffle is $2,000 a kilogram. So, I mean, you know, but you don't have to kind of buy it by the clove. You can have it within a condiment, within a spread, let's say, and put it into your mashed potatoes or whip it into some butter or just have it in your bolognese and it will absolutely take your food to the next level, which, you know, I'm all about a shortcut, really. (laughs) Lovely. Do we have some audience questions? If you could raise your hand, there's a microphone that will come to you for Norni, Alice, or both of them. 
Don't be shy. Yeah, no, don't be shy. It's okay. They're full of knowledge and foodie talk. We only bite a little. <laughs> What's your favourite dish to cook on a weeknight? What's your favourite dish to cook on a weeknight? Mine will have to be simur. So simur is a version of vermicelli chicken. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, it's one of those dishes that, you know, your auntie, because it's a multicultural dish that we developed with, like, the Japanese settling with us, and that's how we introduced our tea grass that we grow and and uh, um, vermicelli and soya sauce into a dish that is now loved. And this dish is one of those dishes if you, if you take a new partner home to visit an auntie or something, you know, and the auntie says to you, oh, have you... Have have they made simur for you yet? And you, and if you say no, they're like, mm, I don't need to know you then. Right, this one's not sticking around. <laughs> you, so you make this dish basically if you're gonna keep if you're a keeper. I love that. I love for us that's lasagna. If you make lasagna, you're getting married. For me, it's about what's in the fridge already. So something that's always in our fridge is a big pot of borscht, which is like a a vegetable soup uh, with plenty of beetroot. And it's something that mum would make on a Sunday night and it would feed us every afternoon. And it's something that my husband, very Anglo-Australian husband, makes on a Sunday for us in the household. It's like 10 different vegetables grated. So it's super simple. Our three-and-a-half-year-old helps him grate the veg. And we know that no matter what else is on the table, right away we're nourished and then everything else is just cream. Nice. Do we have another question from the audience? Oh, they're coming thick and fast. For those who haven't yet uh, cooked with Indigenous ingredients, where is a good place to start? Um, I always start with the first three. So I've got like... I, I keep telling people I've got a top five, but really I've got top fives on two hands because uh, so, I can do five on both hands, so I, I can go on. But if you're t- um, talking about spices, I would start with pepperberries first because it gives you that beautiful spiciness that you need, but it's like Szechuan pepper where it's spicy, but it's clovey as well where you can use it as a, as a savoury or a sweet, you know, even if you want to start there by grinding it down and just if you're a chai drinker, just add a little. You know, live a little, spice it up a bit. You know, um, so I would I would start with pepperberries, salt bush because you get the natural salt, that saltiness that comes from, but it also gives you that herb flavor at the end as well. So it's a double whammy. And then go wattle seeds as well because we have 165 edible, you know, actually more than that, almost 600 um, different species in Australia of wattle seed and they all are very different. So, and they give you that sort of caffeine and and, um, nutty flavor that you want where you can use it for crumbs or you can use it for making bread. Because the locals and indigenous people were making bread out of um, wattle seeds for generations because it's a natural thickener and it thickens things. So if you add it to a bit of milk, you, you'll get a little extra. It's like I call it the indigenous thick shake. So, um, you know, I, I would start with those three. And then if you love that, you'll be ready for the rest. Yeah. Lovely. Okay, I think that's all we have time for. Oh, or is there one more? Oh, sorry, one more, one more. My question was really only as a sort of pause filler, but I'd really like to ask, what's your favourite piece of dugong offal to eat? (laughs) My 
dugong or offal? No, the dugong offal. Oh, I'm, I'm an intestines girl. So, you know, I do like, that's my favourite bits on a dugong and a turtle. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'm drawn to the ugly bits. <laughs> what a great note to end on. Wow. <laughs> So, huge thanks, big SO to our panellists today, Norni Beto and Alice Zavlaski. Food people really are the best people. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your food and culture with us so generously. Thanks so much to the Wheeler Centre for organising this wonderful event for all of us and to Black and Bright and the Griffith Review. And I just want to give another shout-out to the Griffith Review. If you like food, you're going to want to read this issue. It's fantastic. Thanks to Reading's booksellers who have set out all the books for us today. We're all happy to sign them. And finally, I want to thank you all so much for coming along today with your hearts open, your tummies empty and your minds curious. Thank you. You've been listening to Jacqueline Krupe in conversation with Norni Barrow and Alice Zaslavsky. This event was presented in partnership with Griffith Review and Black and Bright as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.